Hello and welcome to the Tide podcast, a podcast about type 1 diabetes and disordered eating. Hello and welcome back to the Tide podcast. I'm your host Ella and I'm joined today by Leslie and Neil Davison. Thank you guys for joining me. Hi. Hello. Um, so Leslie and Neil, they're here today to talk about their daughter, Megan, who had um, tied and who took her life a few years ago. Um, so over to you guys. Uh, can you just introduce Megan as a person to start off with? Um, well, Megan was born in 1989 and took her life in August 2017 and was, um, I think everybody agreed, a very individual sort of a person. Um, She was bright, she was articulate, she was academically very intelligent, um, and she was diagnosed with diabetes type 1 at 16, and struggled with it we found out afterwards for 10 years Um, and then the struggle became too much and we only found that out after her first suicide attempt was unsuccessful so for 10 years she'd been struggling we didn't know and only a very very close group of friends um, had any idea and you said she was um, diagnosed with type 1 at 16. When did the eating disorder problem start? Because that obviously played into, into her struggle with type 1 as a whole, right? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, very difficult to retrospectively look back and identify exactly when things happened as far as the timeline is concerned. But we became aware that Megan had uh, eating disorder problems um, only through the extensive a suicide letter she left us um, and that indicated that she was struggling with an eating disorder from a relatively early age um, and the the way that type 1 diagnosis impacted on that was that straight away she said her eating disorder was giddy with joy because somehow she very quickly realized through crashing with uh, type 1 diabetes uh, that it was a it was a tool she could use to lose weight. She could all of a sudden, it freed her up. She could eat, she could drink, she could go out, she could socialise. And restricting or omitting her insulin was her way of getting back into the world. Regardless of the health concerns that she had, she knew she knew what she was doing. Um, but ultimately, it was a continuation of a sort of surreptitious way of dealing with her independent life. She felt she had control. And while those sort of behaviours could continue, it just got progressively worse and worse and worse. Mm. And you said she felt in control when she was emitting her insulin. What do you think then ultimately made her decide she wanted to take her life? What made it too much? Did her, did you have an indication of that? I think, I think the progression of it, um, if you consider, based on the information we got from our daughter, um, she talked about having uh, eating problems from probably 13, 14, 15 years of age. 
Um, so dealing with that and keeping that quiet, um, I think that was her, her way of control. It was selfish. It was selfish, but it was also selfless. And I think because she learned that as we, she was fiercely independent. So um, us sort of trying to get involved in all of that just would have uh, trod on her toes effectively. So she was used to that sort of surreptitious behaviour. So when the type 1 diagnosis came along, she just carried on. In fact, it accentuated keeping it quiet, whether it was through embarrassment, shame, guilt, whatever. She felt independently that she could control it. She could deal with this. Um, and she really treated it with disdain, as far as we were concerned anyway. It was just something else in her life that she had some form of control over. And I think I think retrospectively, it's easy now to look back and think of things that might have gone wrong medically. Um, but at the time, as parents, all the boxes were being ticked. You know, we had a very independent daughter, a very intelligent daughter, a very articulate daughter. Um, and she was, uh, she got the best A-level results in her school. Um, she created a situation for herself at university where she succeeded. She did psychology. She, she understood people. She spoke very clearly. Um, and if there was information she didn't know, she would find out. Um, and I think that sort of changed over a period of time as things got progressively worse for her and the restriction and the omission was a continual process. Um, she just felt there was no hope. I mean, you know, she, she considered both her physical and mental health were to an extent that she just couldn't carry on anymore. And she explains it very, very well in her suicide letter. Mm. And how much awareness was there from the healthcare professionals looking after her diabetes of her eating disorder? Much at all? I don't think there was any. Um, we applied for and got her medical records after her death. Um, to the extent that they affected her, her diabetes, and looking at her medical records, um, her diabetes was out of control practically immediately. Um, so, as I said, for, for 10 years, basically, it was obvious that she wasn't controlling her diabetes at all. Um, and from what we can see, um, it was it was just a case of um, you're out of control, Megan. You're mm. out of control, Megan. You're out of control, Megan. Um, nobody seemed to know what to do with that. Uh, now, whether that was because there wasn't anywhere to send her, which seems to partly have been the problem, um, that what do you do with somebody when you don't know what to do with them um, so it, it just was left so she just went she went back and had the same conversations time and time again about you must do better mm. um, and that there was a lot of missed appointments and again you have the same conversation where you shouldn't miss your appointments um, you must do better you've got to take your insulin you've got to get your control back so I, I think the whole thing just turned into a vicious circle that really, I think, probably made matters worse. She probably knew more than the people she was talking to in a lot of ways. Mm. She'd, done, she'd done a lot of research herself about what was wrong with her. But nobody until almost immediately before her first suicide attempt 
mention the fact that it might be some sort of condition. It might mm. be a disorder. And that was the very first time, as far as we were aware, that anything was mentioned to her. Mm. Um, you say your first suicide attempt. Can you talk to me a little bit about, about that? How many suicide attempts did you have before the ultimate successful one? Um, the very, very first one was in 2016. And uh, to give you an indication of how much of a shock it was to us, um, we thought it was somebody playing a ridiculous practical joke on us. Um, we were rung f from a nearby hospital. Um, I think it was probably about three days. Three, three days after she tried to take her own life um, and was obviously being treated. And we had, to, we had to be told of the situation because they were sectioning her. So legally, we had to be involved. But that was, that was the very, very first time we were given um, any signs that our daughter was struggling with her everyday life. Um, and it wasn't what we what has to be said here is that it wasn't a cry for help. I mean, Megan took an insulin overdose and booked herself into a, a place and asked for a late booking out time so that she wouldn't be found in the morning. It was just uh, a lucky set of circumstances that meant that, the, you know, the red flag went up and she was discovered in time and brought back to life effectively. Um, but if, if, if we look at it now, we, we had the last 11 or 12 months worth of our daughter's life within NHS care. Um, prior to that, there was absolutely nothing. And if we look at it now and think what might have happened, if she had been successful that first time around, we wouldn't be talking to you now. We wouldn't have the wealth of information we have about the condition. And we would be, I don't know how we'd be coping with it. I'll be 100% honest with you. I just, you know, I'm not saying that this last 11 or 12 months has been, has been good for us because it hasn't. But at the same time, it's giving us a better understanding of what Megan was going through. Um, and what she now requires us to do for her. Mm, because she left a roadmap essentially for you, didn't you, for how to raise awareness and to to help with other people that are struggling with Tide? I think I think um, one of the blessings here is that um, this sort of conversation becomes relatively easy if you are uh, working towards what your daughter wanted you to do. Um, and I think... It, it honours her memory. Um, she pointed us in the right direction, gave us the initial contact, um, gave us so much information about her history and what she'd been through. Um, and the only way we can process it properly is to say, look, we pr appreciate the 27 years we had with our daughter, but how do we move that on positively? Because we can, we can wrap ourselves up in knots thinking about what we could have done to change things but ultimately, there are no definitive answers to that. And we know I will go to my grave thinking I could have done more and should have done more. But at the same time, I know there won't be any answers to that. And therefore, what you have to do is try and take a positive out of this and try to help other Megans who may be listening as we speak. Mm. And I guess that's a, that's a characteristic of eating disorders generally, isn't it? Like that secretiveness and not not necessarily wanting help from the people closest to you um but you know wanting to help other people who are like you if that makes sense yeah i mean we, we've found out since that um not not just about eating disorders or disorders but that we've had a lot of responses from friends and other people that she had helped along 
the way, we've had lots of messages and tributes from people who she helped, which were amazing when you think how much she was struggling. Mm. Is there anything you think um, medics, the NHS system, could have done differently to to help her? Um once again, you know, the last three or four years, we've spent an awful lot of time looking at the research situation, getting more details about the condition. But I think in fairness, you know, you look back on it now and you think, well, that mistake was made. That was a ridiculously bad judgment call, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to realise that it, it needs to be looked at in context. Now, what I am saying to you is 100% that the current system is unfit for purpose. That's one thing I would stress straight away. Now, it's not just based on um, our story with Megan. That's based on all the conversations we've had through research um, locally uh, with, uh, with different um, charity organisations. Um, and I think um, it's a sad realisation that if we just walk away from these sort of conversations and say everyone's doing the best they can do under the circumstances, then... 100% the circumstances need to change and very, very quickly. Um, it isn't good enough. I think all the expertise is there, um, but it's not being joined up properly. And when people talk about integrated services, they are only integrated services if individually these people are talking to each other and come up with a, a plan that works in all areas. The one thing that I would say is it, is it, it exacerbates the problem is that because people don't communicate, if you get contradictory advice from the different parts of this condition, um, that makes it worse. Um, it has to be complementary and it has to be sympathetic to the person's needs. And I think that's that's sadly getting lost um, throughout all this. And it happens at all levels. You know, if you take GP level, for example, it's one thing understanding possibly what the condition is. But if there's no safe space for them to go after the consultation, and if you've got a 10-minute consultation, how are you going to delve into somebody's psyche with regard to the condition? Everyone talks about the relationship with diabetes, for example. Um, well, that's, that's only good if you've got a positive view of what's going on. If everything is negative about it, the maintenance, the control, looking after your diet, the constant blood sugar level process, everything about it, is not going to be advantageous to a, an adolescent's everyday existence. And I think those two things completely rub against each other. And for, for, for somebody of that age who is extremely vulnerable, especially with social pressures and everything else that's going on, to understand what might happen in 30 or 40 years' time is just a complete waste of time. They live in the moment. They just want immediate gratification for a lifestyle choice. And if that just happens to be adverse, going forward well you know tough tough mm, so do you think Megan had had that awareness of kind of the the complications that 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 could come from this or do you think she just didn't care uh, I don't think she it's not a case of not caring I think she understood you know Megan mm. as as my wife says they she understood more about the condition that the majority of people treating her did and therefore it was it was relatively easy for her to navigate her way through the system you know she was very secretive about it but she had an understanding of what was going on so her it was self-inflicted yeah but for mental health reasons you know the, the pressures on her to maintain a lifestyle that she felt she was in control of just got worse and worse mm. and worse and the choices to take her own life um 
were based on her frustration and the fact that she thought she wasn't going to get better. You know, I've always said that when she went, her last year of life in NHS care was as an observer, more so as a, as in a patient, because she was well aware of what was going on and she felt it was only going to go one direction. So when she explained to us that the decision she took was a decision that was right for her at the time and had to be accepted on that basis, we understood it. And as parents, when your daughter or your child says to you, things would only have got worse, and you think how it was spiraling out of control anyway, you know, I'm not saying that we agreed with what she did, but the thought of her carrying on with that behaviour and getting worse and worse mm-hmm. and worse would have been would have been much worse for us. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so during that last year of her life, when she, when after she was sectioned after the first suicide attempt, did anything change in the way that that she was looked after and in her healthcare? She she did have some time in an inpatient clinic, and of course at that stage we thought, great, you know, she's she's safe again, um, and we thought once she got into this secure unit and she was put into the residential care unit, um, it, it would be all right, she would be safe. Um, but she was actually almost as at as as much risk in the residential unit as she was outside because she was in a position where she actually managed to build up enough insulin in that unit to attempt a second overdose of insulin. So that's quite shocking to me that her first suicide attempt was via insulin overdose and yet she was allowed to accumulate enough to do it again. That's, that's, that's really shocking. Well, I think, you know, when I say that, you know, the system is unfit for purpose, I mean, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. If you yeah. consider that she spent, uh, she was sectioned for, I think, five days. Um, and during that time, she was given control of her own insulin intake because the diabetic support on in the facility was just woefully lacking in that support so you know if you consider that she took an insulin overdose to be sectioned and then to say to that person 24 hours later well we don't know what we're doing here we don't know what doses to give you can you go away and deal with it please effectively and then you take a three-month stay in a an eating disorder facility and in fairness to them they didn't say that they could cure tide they are an eating disorder facility but if you don't understand the condition and the nhs makes a referral to a place that doesn't have diabetic support in the way that is needed to treat tide as a condition, then you're making the problem worse because she will look like a model patient as far as the eating disorder is concerned and do everything she's told. But once again, she is in control of her, of her insulin. And for her to be able to stockpile insulin in that stay to, to facilitate a second suicide attempt for us is just absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous. And that and the sectioning and the um, eating disorder facility cost the NHS just short of fifty thousand pounds. So if you consider that sort of wastage as far as, as the money is concerned, um, and what you could do with that money to better address the condition, 
It's just, that's why I'm saying it's unfit for purpose. That's just an indication of, and I'm not sure things have improved as it stands at the moment. Mm. Yeah, that is um, shocking. But you're right, it's, 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 an, it's a perfect example of how unfit for purpose it is. Um, I think, I think you know, Megan at that stage uh, didn't want to be here anymore. So I can understand that Megan would not be the ideal patient as far as that's concerned. And I think, you know, one thing to stress here is that, you know, all the information that we've read is about um, somebody who develops an eating disorder as a consequence of type 1 diagnosis. Um, now, that wasn't true in Megan's case. And I'll be very surprised if the way round that we're talking about, i.e. the eating disorder comes before the type 1 diagnosis, is much more common, A, than people think, and B, than the other way around. And I think the one thing that it indicates is that somebody is used to secretive behaviours to hide mm. what they're doing to themselves. So thereby, when you get the type 1 diagnosis, you just carry on with that. And it's just a slippery slope. It's a vicious circle. And I think at that stage, Megan just thought, this is, this is not for me anymore, you know? Mm. yeah you're totally right you know because um likewise all the research all the most of the conversations around it do talk about the eating disorder coming after the type one and that's not my experience either you know like that my eating disorder preceded um type one and I'm I'm just truly lucky that I recovered from that before I was diagnosed with type one otherwise you know my story could have been similar to Megan's but you don't hear so much about people whose eating disorder started first and I guess in fairness it can be hard sometimes to get hands on the timeline of these things um but yeah it's it's interesting it's interesting that's for sure and I think you're right when you say the behavior the learned behavior of an eating disorder certainly isn't going to be helpful with a type 1 diagnosis introduced yeah, and, and the thing about the type 1 diagnosis and restriction and omission is this this idea that effectively you're weaponising somebody. I mean, they they therefore have a tool to mm. control, um, uh, you know, how much they've mm. eaten wrongly or, or gone out socially or done things that all of a sudden opens them up to a new world. Um, but at the same time, they know they can regulate you know what goes on with their bodies by by uh, insulin misuse and, yeah. and i think you know that that's the danger here is that i think the association with insulin first and foremost it's looked at as a life-saving uh, entity um and you're told and you're educated that the only way you're going to save your life is to continually inject yourself for the rest of your life it's a life sentence now that's got to be ridiculously difficult for anybody to get their head around but if you also say to somebody, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna lead a normal life and you want to go out, you want to do this stuff, and you want to uh, enjoy yourself, you want to meet with your peers, you want to uh, get jobs, you want to pass exams, you want to do all these things, and a way of doing this is to just regulate how much insulin you take on board. Um, the pressures on youngsters are absolutely ridiculous, and it's not really a case of why would you do that. It's a case of why wouldn't you? You know, if you're given, if you're given that, because so it changes from being your friend, insulin, to something that you know can kill you. That's the mm. thing, and I don't think telling a 16-year-old that they might not live to 60, 65, that's not going to go in there. It's just not going to stay in there. They just want to be enjoying themselves at the time. And you, as I say, you've got to bear in mind that all this time, Megan was succeeding in life. 
She she was doing her dream job. She wanted to be a teacher. She wanted to help kids. And she was doing all this. So us questioning her behavior was really treading on eggshells, especially with an independent soul like Megan. Um, and she was achieving. So this these things are going parallel, unbeknown to us. And you never questioned Megan about something like that because she was on track as far as we were concerned. Mm-hmm. So this, this, this fixation about insulin and weight is a huge, it's a huge thing for a, for a youngster. And I, some, somehow that dialogue has got to change. And I, I'm not sure how easy that is. It's very easy to say, well, you need to have the sort of relationship with your child that you can bring all this stuff up and talk about it. But sometimes you're too far down that continuum. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're not aware of it, there's no way you're going to have that conversation anyway. And the solution is different. Is difficult in and of itself, you know? Like, we don't... Eating disorders are hard enough to deal with as it is, let alone when you have the extra diagnosis of, yeah, yeah. And you're totally right talking about um, the insulin as a, as, a, as a weapon for an eating disorder almost, like... I remember when I was much younger, when my disordered eating was starting, but before I had an eating disorder, I remember being so fixated on losing weight that I wished I had the willpower to starve myself. And then when I realized I could make myself sick, my bulimia started, I was, I was thrilled because I had this, this way to do it. And imagine if I had been diagnosed as diabetic then and had the insulin as my weapon, that would have been, of course it would have happened. Well, thankfully you didn't because we wouldn't be having this conversation yeah. and that sort of works both ways. You know, we, we're lucky in, in, a, in a certain way because we've had through experience that last year, we can get our head around it now. But if you take mm. that last 11, 12 months away, I, I just I just don't know. You know, I just don't know where we'd be now. I just I just really don't. It's, it's difficult enough. Um, and if you sort of try and absolve yourself of responsibility, um, that's never going to happen. As I said to you, as parents, that's never, ever going to happen. We will always live with thinking that, you know, we might have been able to do something to change it. But at the same time, um, you, you have to let a lot of this go. You have to just say to yourself, look, you know, Megan chose this for herself. She crammed an awful lot into the time she had with us. And now she wants to change other people's lives for the better. Um, and that's got to be the focus of attention going forward for us. And like you say, it's the best way to honour her memory, isn't it? Well, there is no other way. I mean, yeah. the alternative is to do nothing, mope, sit around the house and do nothing. And as I say, the brave thing would be for somebody like your good self to say, why aren't you doing something about it? Now, if I was fending off those sort of questions, given our experience and the direction our daughter gave us, that would be very brave. This is relatively easy because it's it's doing the right thing. Yeah, for sure. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. All we can do is keep talking about it and just try to move it on. And obviously, thanks so much for your time. You know, it means a lot to us because we can talk about our daughter, but it's so much bigger than that. Yeah.